Hey guys, did you hear about Keto Fest last year? My friends Carl and Richard from the Two Keto Dudes podcast held a ketogenic food and science festival in the coastal New England town of New London, Connecticut, and 300 ketonians came and had a great time. Well, this year, it's the weekend of July the 21st, 2018, and they're planning double the fun. A bigger pig roast, wine and cheese tasting, cheese making classes, fitness lessons, keto cooking demos and tastings, walking tours, Segway tours, twice as many speakers, including yours truly, a day of fasting activities on Fasting Friday, and an epic house party to kick it all off. Get your tickets now at KetoFest.com to help support the Kickstarter that ends on March the 31st. If they don't pre-sell enough tickets, it just ain't gonna happen. So reserve your tickets now at ketofest.com. Coming up in episode 1373, an LLVLC classic with Dr. David Perlmutter. Connecting and educating and making the world a more informed and healthier place. You're listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. You've helped change so many lives and give us all the courage to take on the rest of the world. This is the longest running health podcast on the air today. You've done so much to spread the word about how diet matters. Over 1,000 episodes strong and counting. The amount of lives that you've changed at this point is incalculable. And now, here's our host and international best-selling author you're like the ll cool j of podcasting jimmy moore hey guys jimmy moore here just wanted to let you know we're going to be airing over the next month some llvlc classic episodes i am currently in the midst of writing a book with my wife christine and we're on book deadline so i need a little bit of a break from doing interviews but we have so many great interviews from our archives here at the live in la vida low carb show and i think you're going to like the one you have to hear today so enjoy Welcome back to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. Today, I am extremely pleased to welcome to the podcast a gentleman by the name of Dr. David Perlmutter. He is a board-certified neurologist and fellow of the American College of Nutrition. He got his MD from the University of Miami School of Medicine. He was awarded the Leonard G. Roundtree Research Award after he completed residency training in neurology he uh, entered private practice in Naples, Florida. He's a frequent lecturer at, at uh, various symposiums, and he is here today because he has written, you guys, you've got to get this book. It's called Grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar, Your Brain's Silent Killers. Now, I got to tell you, Dr. Perlmutter, the first time I saw the name of your book, I was excited just because it was not like nice onomatopoeia with the, you know, the alliteration. But when I dug into what the book was going to be about, literally mind blowing. I, I was just so happy that you've written this book. It definitely, the time has come for a book like this to be out there. Dr. Perlmutter, uh, welcome to the show. Jimmy, I'm just delighted to be here, and I want to thank you for not only the opportunity, but for all the, you know, all the messages that you're getting out there because. I think all of us who are doing what we're doing and basically what we're doing is telling people that food matters yep. uh, are, you know, are really, it, it's, it's time to change the paradigm and we're up against a mentality in, in America that doesn't want to recognize that, yeah, as a matter of fact, the foods you eat have a role to play in your health. So um, I'm grateful to be here. 
Thank you. And so I, I guess to give people a little more of an understanding of who you are and how you came as a medical doctor to be so interested in the subject of nutrition, why don't we back up and hear that story? How, how did you get involved in wanting to, obviously as a, a neurosurgeon, you, you definitely are extremely interested in the effects that food have on brain health, but how did you come to this epiphany? Uh, I think through frustration. Uh, you know, for years I was practicing in a very conservative mainstream practice and all we were doing were, was treating the after effects of what we didn't understand. Yeah. So we were seeing people with all types of maladies and offering up symptomatic treatments, treating the symptoms of this or that. And it finally dawned on me that basically what we were doing was treating the smoke but ignoring the fire. So mm -hmm. I felt, you know, it was time to really dig in and ask the, the, the very hard questions what is causing things like ADHD in our children and Alzheimer's disease in adults? And <clears throat> it didn't take much to, to really gain an understanding that our most well-respected peer-reviewed journals back then and to this day have been publishing uh, citation after citation that indicates that, believe it or not, you know, the, the levels of blood sugar, the foods that we eat that raise blood sugar are directly responsible for our most pernicious our most insidious uh, maladies that we, we fear the most. So that, in, in that regard, it was, uh, it was a revelation for me. And I will say that, um, you know, several years ago, uh, we, our dog was losing his fur. You're probably wondering where this is going. <laughs> so we took Tico to the vet and sat him up on the, on the examining table. The, the vet walked in. The first question she asked was, what are you feeding your dog? When, you know, we told her. And I realized at that moment that if you walked into your doctor's office and the first question he or she would ask is, what are you eating? Yes. A lot of people would be surprised and some would even be offended by that comment. And it turns out that, you know, <clears throat> here we've published the book uh, now and a grain brain is, uh, you know, as you well know, having recently published your book, that you submit your book for publication months and months before it actually becomes available. Right. And, and what has been frustrating, I know you've experienced this, is that since the book was submitted for publication, <laughs> so many more articles are coming out right. saying that your premise is right on target. I mean, right. last month in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine was a very powerful article that showed they measured people's fasting blood sugar and they followed them for almost seven years. And they were able to compare their fasting blood sugars with their percentage risk for becoming demented. And they found this perfect correlation. And the scary part was that these weren't diabetics. These were people who had blood sugars that most doctors would say are perfectly fine, 105, 108. Right. That's not good enough. At right. those levels, people already have a much higher risk of becoming demented. And I will point out that as you and I are having this conversation today, there is no treatment for dementia in the world, right. and it is absolutely, according to the journal Lancet Neurology, a, prevented, a preventable disorder based upon what we choose to do with our foods and other aspects of lifestyle choice. So, yeah, I've had a lot of people on uh, various podcasts that I've done talking about this whole dementia and the effects of brain health, and it seems that a ketogenic diet which is kind of what I see in your book, and we're going to dive very quickly into your book here in a minute, but it, it seems like the brain prefers to be 
uh, to run basically on ketone bodies. In fact, right now I tested my blood ketones, my beta hydroxybutyrate just this morning. It's right around 0.8, which is in a pretty good range. I, I tend to feel the best mental aspects of that when I'm over 1.0 millimolar. But uh, that seems to be kind of the premise of cutting down on this wheat and sugar and carbohydrates on brain health. Well, absolutely, 100%. You, you couldn't have hit the nail on the head more perfectly. The brain loves to metabolize fat as a fuel source. And you mentioned beta-hydroxybutyrate. Absolutely. That is now considered a brain super fuel. Yeah. And, you know, uh, if you look at what people eat and determine their risk for becoming demented, demented a powerful study came to us from the Mayo Clinic and was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease in January of 2012. And what they discovered what, was that those individuals who ate more fat, powered their bodies with fat, had a 44% reduced risk for developing dementia. Wow. As opposed to those who powered their bodies with carbohydrate, whose risk was increased fourfold of becoming demented. What's the mechanism so, there? Do you know? Well, again, it's exactly what you bring up. We're talking about providing fat as a fuel source uh, for every cell in your body uh, versus powering your cells far less efficiently with something called carbohydrate. And, you know, what we're, we're recommending here is, in fact, uh, going towards a ketotic program, burning fat as opposed to carbs. And it's a revolutionary, brand new recommendation. It's a brand new diet that humans have only consumed for two and a half million years. <laughs> so that's what's so revolutionary. So the two points are that the science is absolutely fundamentally yeah. all over this now. Uh, to the extent that there are now medical foods that are available with a prescription that provide exactly what you mentioned, a fat, beta-hydroxybutyrate, to power the brain as a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. Who knew? And beyond that, we've got this historical support indicating that this is what humans have eaten. And how do we know that? We know it basically because uh, until 0.01% uh, of uh, a time ago, uh, basically for 99.9% .9 of the time on this planet, we didn't have any uh, access to significant carbohydrates. Right, it's right. not like our hunter-gatherer forebears would suddenly stumble upon a wheat field and then they'd start <laughs> whipping out the sickles before the Bronze Age or whatever, nor were there orange groves and apple groves. And, and you know, people just don't get the fact that there are so many hidden sources of carbohydrates in the day-to-day -day accepted and even recommended diet. You know, here I am, I, I'm actually doing this uh, recording with you today from my medical office, and I'm seeing patients here all day long. And, you know, I say to them, well, uh, do you, would you start your morning with a can of Coke? Oh, absolutely not. And, uh, and I tell them why. I say, you know, that'd be a, a reason, a good reason not to is because that's a lot of carbohydrate. It's a lot of sugar. Mm -hmm. What do you have for breakfast? And they say, well, I have a whatever, a nice glass of orange juice, for example, nothing wrong with that. And I explained to them, well, you know, an, a glass, a 12-ounce glass of orange juice is 36 grams of carbohydrates. That's nine teaspoons of sugar. That's before the croissant and the, uh, you know, the, the short stack arrives that you're going to pour the, the high fructose corn syrup on. So just with your glass of orange juice, you're getting half the carbohydrates that you should have in an entire day. And people don't 
don't know that. I mean, carbs are toxic for the brain. Uh, we understand, you know, based upon, as I mentioned, that recent report in the New England Journal of Medicine, that carbs, even at low levels of blood sugar effect, are toxic, damaging to the brain, and are directly related to a person's risk of developing Alzheimer's, which is a preventable disease, according to the journal Lancet Neurology, last year publishing a dramatic report showing that at least 54% of Alzheimer's patients didn't have to get that disease. That's about 2.6 million Americans who are suffering with this, this disease, not to mention their family members and loved ones who suffer along with them, not only because they're caring for these people, but because they're living then under the threat that they're going to develop this disease for which there is no treatment, it's preventable. John right, Kennedy right. said that the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. And, <laughs> you know, I think that, you know, my mission and why I wrote Grain Brain is to let people be empowered that we now need to put the brain and brain health into the category of preventive medicine. You know, preventive medicine is the heart smart diet or or women exercising and eating calcium rich foods to keep their bones healthy, but the brain uh, is so uh, amenable to uh, preventive medicine just by dietary modification and dramatically uh, by engaging in aerobic exercise. Aerobic exercise actually turns on the parts of our DNA that allow us to grow new brain cells specifically in those areas of the brain that degenerate in Alzheimer's disease. The memory centers can be regrown. And I can assure you that back in medical school, that notion was considered blasphemous to right, say the right. least. So do you think the reason why we're so obsessed uh, uh, about uh, calories, uh, that, that obsession that we have about calories, is that's what has kept us off of all of these foods that would affect our brains? Because if we see something that's 100 calories, who cares if it's a carbohydrate, a protein, or a fat, or whatever? It, it seems the obsession about calories is what's led us down this pathway to having grain brains. Well, I have to tell you, what a what a great question! And I, it, this past weekend, I had the opportunity to to lecture in Washington D.C., and one of my slides has a man sitting at a computer scratching his head. It's actually animation, and uh, with the quote, "A calorie is a calorie" on the screen, and and that is so off base. Uh, a calorie isn't. Uh, they're not all created equally, you know, uh, even amongst the sugars that have uh, four calories uh, per gram, 4.2 uh, calories per gram or so, that the, the consumption of fructose as opposed to glucose in a recent study that appeared, oddly enough, in the Journal of the American Medical Association <laughs> demonstrated that fructose and glucose, ha though they are isocaloric, they have this same, you know, they're simple, they're simple sugars, monosaccharides, have dramatically different effects on the brain. That fructose 
fails to trigger satiety in the brain. It fails to tr- let your brain know that you've eaten enough and it's time to push away from the table. And, and perhaps more importantly, fructose doesn't stimulate the production of a hormone called insulin, which also plays a fundamental role along with leptin in telling you that you've eaten enough and it's time to stop eating. So again, even amongst the sugars, a calorie isn't a calorie. There's no uh, equality between them. Now, with this crazy idea of calories being the cornerstone, you know, people used to say calories in versus calories out. In other words, if you can exercise more and take in less calories, you will lose weight. And it doesn't work that way because body fat is stored in response to insulin, of course, and that's dealing with sugar exposure uh, and specifically glucose. Glucose causes insulin, causes your body to store fat. Secondarily, Glucose is lowered by insulin, but the primary role of insulin is the creation of fat. That's what it's done for 2.5 million years. It's why we have had some carbs in the late summer when fruit was ripe and we were hunter-gatherers. We would eat the ripened fruit. We would stimulate insulin. We would store some fat. We would make it through the winter so we continue to survive. But fat has far more calories per gram, nine calories per gram. Oh my goodness, we've got to stay away from fat. But in reality, you know, fat is far more uh, satiety inducing, allows us to know when to quit eating, and is a far more efficient energy source for the body. And especially things like, dare I say, saturated fat, one of the most healthful foods on the planet. Yep, Coming yep. from uh, such... Uh, castigated foods as the dreaded egg. Eggs are perhaps one of the most wonderful foods that we can consume. You know, one of the things I say to people is that if saturated fat was so bad for the brain and the body, why would 54% of the fat in human breast milk be saturated fat if it were so bad for us. Now, obviously, does that mean somebody made a mistake along the way? Either nature or God made an error there, putting dreaded saturated fat in human breast milk? I think not. And why would, for example, every cell in our bodies make this dreaded chemical called cholesterol if it's so bad. Again, was there some mistake? No. The fact that our bodies make cholesterol and they're desperately in need of cholesterol is what has allowed us to survive as long as we have. It's not a mistake. Declaring war on cholesterol is an absolute perversion. The brain is desperate for cholesterol. You know, these days we do a lot of blood work on patients and so frequently we're seeing dramatic deficiencies of vitamin D. And when I'm working with a patient and I look at the vitamin D level and I, I ask them, you know, do you have any idea where it's coming from? Why, where do you make, how do you get vitamin D? And they say, well, you know, I go out in the sun and I, that makes vitamin D. I, and I say, okay, great. But from what, what does your body manufacture it from? <laughs> and no one really thinks about that. And I say, it comes from this dreaded chemical called Cholesterol. Cholesterol is the raw material from which we make all of the sex hormones, the bile acids that allow you to digest your food and absorb vitamins A, D, E, and K. But from my perspective as a brain scientist, cholesterol is what is used to encapsulate the neurotransmitters, the things that allow one brain cell to talk to another. And it's intriguing to me that the FDA 
is now requiring in the warning information on drugs that lower cholesterol of the statin class that they include this warning that indicates that they can affect how the brain works and can cause things like memory disorders and other cognitive problems. Why? Because they deplete the brain of what it desperately needs to be healthy, and that is cholesterol. So it's time to take a step back. And, you know, when you realize that in elderly individuals, those individuals with the highest cholesterol have about a 70% reduced risk for dementia and about a 44% reduced risk of becoming dead. Now, you know, becoming dead is kind of an endpoint, I would say, in terms of <laughs> the scientific literature. But, you know, the studies are showing that for every 39 points of increased cholesterol, risk of becoming a dead person that drops by 15%. Right, right. So, I mean, here you've written a book about this topic. It's time to bring the science. It, it, and these are not emotional things that we're talking about. It's not, we're, we're not saying this based upon uh, a religious conviction or an emotional experience. What you've done and what I've done in Grain Brain is allowing people to look at what is the most well-respected scientific literature telling us about these decision-making trees that we should abide by in terms of recommendations for people in terms of their health. So it's time to stop looking at the advertisements in medical journals and time to start reading the actual science. Uh, you know, the truth will set you free. People tend to be down on what they're not up on. <laughs> I love that. Isn't it interesting that the top books right now that are coming out are ones talking about cutting grains and producing ketones and and eating healthy, real whole foods. It's, it still makes me laugh, Dr. Perlmutter, that we have to call food real food. It used to just be called food, but now we have to distinguish what we mean from food from this Neolithic food that's on the shelves today. But, uh, you know, these are the kind of things that people are literally hungry for, and they're dominating the top of the Amazon sales charts. Uh, why do you think there's such an interest in books like Grain Brain? It's a it's a great question, and I think people. This is a uh, pun intended. Uh, people are fed up with the wrong information, and yep. uh, you know we accept just as part of our our current uh, experience that there are stores called health food stores. <laughs> think about that. There are stores. What a bizarre concept. There are stores that actually sell products that you eat that are good for your health and they are you know they're buried off in a strip mall somewhere as opposed to what we would normally buy in the grocery store they've cut out this niche of foods believe it or not that have an influence upon our health how far we have come there's actually uh, in our uh, big grocery store here in in Florida they have a section called natural foods <laughs> and that means <laughs> foods that come from nature, and it's a little table that they've, you know, dedicated to uh, those of us who, uh, you know, are, are so inclined. And there's a little table dedicated to foods that don't contain poison. And I think it's, uh, and again, people just accept this as a matter of course. I think the message here is that we've got to understand that food is far more than the macronutrients of protein, carbohydrate, and fat. Right. And the micronutrients of 
minerals and vitamins and that food really represents information and that food, the foods that we consume are targeting the expression of our DNA. What an empowering thought. I have a whole section in Grain Brain talking about this notion of epigenetics, that we control our genetic destiny. You know, back in medical school in the late 70s, uh, your DNA was locked in a glass case and determined who and what you would become. And uh, we now understand that more than 70% of those genes that play a role in uh, determining our health and longevity are under our direct control. And that is a very empowering notion. We can change our genetic destiny. So people will say, you know, I have the Alzheimer's gene and uh, therefore I'm in deep trouble. Well, you know, I will, I will agree there's an increased risk of Alzheimer's in that individual, but let's talk about offloading the camel's back uh, from other straws over which you do have control. For example, we talk about <clears throat> the damage done by glucose, and I, I need to digress and be a little scientific here for just a please, moment. Please, please. The, the reason that blood sugar is an issue uh, mechanistically is it binds to protein. When sugar binds to protein, we call that glycation. It's a, it's a uh, technical term, right. basically meaning that the sugar floating around in your body is binding to uh, <clears throat> protein. Now, glycation is a problem because when you glycate your proteins, you dramatically increase uh, the production of damaging chemicals called free radicals and also inflammation. And those are the two cornerstones of Alzheimer's disease. You can measure the glycation of protein in your body by doing a very simple test. All doctors do it. And it's called hemoglobin A1C or what people call A1C. And, you know, most doctors will look at the A1C and say, well, that's a measurement of your average blood sugar over a three to four month period. That's true. But that's as far as they'll take it. But let's explore just a moment a little bit more in depth about what are the implications of this glycation of protein in this case, glycation of hemoglobin. Glycating proteins increases the production of damaging chemicals called free radicals by as much as 50-fold. Now, what are the implications for the brain then of this simple test called hemoglobin A1C? Well, in the journal Neurology, which is the publication of the American Academy of Neurology, A wonderful study was published called Risk Factors for Progression of Atrophy in Brain Aging. They they actually followed individuals for six years. And at the beginning of the the, uh, trial, they measured various parameters like blood sugar, cholesterol, and this hemoglobin A1C. And then they came back and repeated a brain scan and measured the size of the brain's memory center called the hippocampus. There was this powerful relationship between shrinkage of the brain and the hemoglobin A1C. And the higher the hemoglobin A1C, the higher the blood sugar bonding to protein, the more dramatic was the shrinkage of the brain. And the hemoglobin A1C correlated to the brain shrinkage far more than anything else. In fact, uh, things like cholesterol had no real bearing on shrinkage of the brain. The point I'm making is the glycation of the hemoglobin, the glycation of the protein is a dietary choice. Glycation of proteins relates to the rate at which your brain shrinks. Therefore, 
The foods you eat control the rate at which your brain shrinks. And that is breathtaking. What an, uh, it's worrisome, that's for sure. But the upside here is it's hugely empowering that you can control the rate at which your brain will shrink based upon the foods that you consume. So, you know, again, uh, it's nice to write these best-selling books and people think, well, you know, it's a great book. Uh, I'll read it in passing. But it's so fundamental to understand that when we make statements like this, it's based upon the most well-respected, peer-reviewed research. That citation I just gave you is the American Academy of Neurology. That's the group that says that you're a board-certified neurologist. It's the probably the most well-respected neurology journal in the world, saying that this is a modifiable risk factor for dementia, for crying out loud. Pay attention. Well, that was published in 2005. No one's talking about it. All people are talking about is what pill you can take when you're one taco short of a combo platter. And, you know, I got to tell you, there is nothing, as as you and I had this conversation in 2013, there is no treatment for dementia available on this planet. And yet it can be prevented. It's, it's a very sobering kind of notion, isn't it? I wanted to make sure we brought out something that you... Uh uh, brought up in Green Brain, the surprising truth about wheat, carbs, and sugar, your brain's silent killers. Uh, towards the back and the dietary habits for an optimal brain, page 185, you talk about fasting as a part of producing, uh, you know, in conjunction with a high-fat, low-carb diet, an adequate amount of ketones. Can you talk about the purpose in fasting and why that's an important element in all this? Absolutely. You know, um, fasting is certainly nothing new to the human experience. As hunter-gatherers, we fasted uh, not because we necessarily wanted to, but because uh, food sources were scarce. And we, it, it was part of our adaptation. It actually became a when you fast, uh, it, it, was, it shifted the metabolism to, again, enhance our ability to break down fat, uh, use ketones as a fuel, and get away from carbohydrates. Because, you know, uh, a typical person's carbohydrate storage in glycogen is about 2,000 calories, which, you know, truthfully gets you through a day or two. And uh, yet we have the average person about 40,000 calories in the fat gas tank that we have access to. Right. And we'd love to be able to burn those calories. So fasting gets things jump-started. It activates various gene pathways, uh, including the life-sustaining sirtuin gene pathways. But most importantly, it helps get people, uh, helps shift them over to being what's called keto-adaptive, uh, uh, keto-adaptation, where we can really begin to move away from uh, burning carbohydrates and start using the optimal fuel for human physiology, which is fat. So, uh, you know, we walk people through uh, in Grain Brain, we w- there's a, as you mentioned, there's a, a specific step-by-step guide, how to fast, what does it mean, what should you do in terms of your medications, etc. But, you know, uh, fasting, interestingly enough, has been incorporated into all of the world's major religions, whether it's the fast of Yom Kippur or Ramadan or Jesus fasting for 40 days uh, prior to his public ministry, because it's a way to get the brain to kind of light up and be receptive. And uh, we find it to be 
a, a very empowering uh, experience for our patients. And so I included it in Grain Brain so that many more people can can participate in that. Yeah, and, and I think that's an incredible information. And obviously, it's something that I talk about quite a bit on my blog and in my work as well is getting people to to want and have a desire to be in that state. And I think, uh, you know, books like yours, Grain Brain, is really going to help put ketosis back on the map again in a positive light because, unfortunately, it's been kind of looked at uh, because it has, sounds so close to ketoacidosis that diabetics have to worry about that um, I, I think we're seeing a turnaround in that thinking. People are realizing the therapeutic effects on all sorts of brain health issues. And uh, I look forward to kind of dipping into this myself. I'm, my next book is on ketogenic diets. So we're going to, you know, definitely tap into you maybe as a resource for that. As I well. am. I'm hoping you do, uh, Jimmy. I'm, I'm ready to help you in, in any way with that. That sounds exciting. Yeah. So, uh, but Grain Brain is definitely going to make an impact. And I love in the back of the book where you talk about how do you make this work? How is this new way of life going to uh, how can you measure your your progress on this? And so you give people definite uh, tests to pay attention to and what the ranges should be for that. You give them recipes. You say, you know what? I'm going to make it all easy for you. Just follow this plan and if you do it right, you should feel uh, in your brain a million percent better because I, I can tell you, uh, I'm currently in a 21 and a half hour fast since my last meal. And I'm able to do that because of the things that you talk about in your book, the fasting, the not eating I, I, I am just loving this. I want you to know, I, I am just loving this because... The only reason you're doing as well as you are here, you're on a 21-hour fast, that's not a big deal, right. is because your body is burning its most pr precious fuel right now, uh, which is fat. And, you know, uh, you know I, I generally fast uh, most Saturdays, and I have no problem with that because, you know, we're, we've shifted our physiologies over to burn like an oil lamp, a little flame like an oil lamp that will last days and days as opposed to throwing carbohydrate <clears throat> like gasoline on the fire, right. where after your high-carb breakfast uh, by 10 o'clock in the morning, you're in deep trouble. You're, you're scavenging around for a vending machine. And well, that's, how, you know, that's how most people are. Had we, sur had we been eating carbohydrates, we never would have survived because we wouldn't have gone those three to five days without tracking an animal and being able to, to find our most precious source of calories, which is fat. So I, I'm impressed to hear that. I'm not surprised to hear it, having learned about you. But uh, I think it's, it's impressive that your listeners will know that, yes, you can go a day without eating, and it's a wonderful thing for your physiology, indeed. Yeah, and the productivity uh, has just been unbelievable. I mean, everybody you know, compliments how I answer emails so fast and do all these podcasts. But it, just being able to get things done and not have the 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 grain brain, the brain fog going on, it, it really is <laughs> I, a fascinating I am there. Thing. And, you know, it, it, when people do it, and you said people feel whatever, I think you said a million percent better. Yeah. <clears throat> this is what I do. This is, I, I'm living with, you know, treating these patients on a daily basis and seeing the results of people regaining their ability to do things like drive a car and be able to balance a checkbook and determine appropriate tip at a restaurant yep. and beginning to remember people's names once again. When you give the brain not only what it needs, 
but you take away from the brain what is so toxic to the brain, Yes. most importantly, carbohydrate, and also consider, we didn't have a chance much to talk about it, but the powerfully negative role that gluten is playing, not just in brain health, but throughout human physiology. It's a, an entirely foreign protein that the human physiology is absolutely reacting negatively to. So, it's, 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 you know, it's not like we're inventing something new here. What we're doing is we're taking everybody back to the way it's been for 99.9% of our time here. It's only been in the, in the very, very recent past that we have perverted the fuels that we're giving to this precious human body. And most importantly, we've perverted the message that we're sending to our DNA. So what an interesting and wonderful time. And, and again, you know, the response to Grain Brain, I think uh, you asked why. And I think it's because people are finally getting the message that, gee, something's wrong when we who think we are so smart here in the United States lead the world in Alzheimer's disease and mm. consume 85% of all the ADHD medicines produced on the planet are used right here in the USA. Our kids aren't different from kids in, in Asia and in Europe, nor are we. But what we're doing epigenetically in terms of our foods is, is clearly what's at stake here. So uh, what's at stake? There's a pun. <laughs> <laughs> but um, bum So one last question for you. How do we take this message? Obviously, you've got a book that's destined to be a New York Times bestseller. Congratulations. Uh, but how do we take the message that you're putting out there that people like Dr. William Davis have done in Wheat Belly, um, you know, all these books that are saying these messages that we know are true based on the science, how do we make that penetrate our culture? And, and do you sense that that's happening already because of Wheat Belly oh, and now no doubt. the Grain Brain? No doubt at all. I, I just finished uh, two weeks ago recording a PBS Yep. A special that will air in uh, late November, early December. Can't wait. And, and I mentioned that because, you know, that was recorded in front of a live audience. And I watched what happened. Uh, this was, for even for me, a life-changing moment because uh, people were just, <laughs> their jaws dropped and, and their heads were nodding because they finally got it, that uh, I was able finally by just presenting science, not emotion, not religion, just the science that that finally let them realize that, you know, these food pyramids and six to eight servings of grains a day and, and lots of fruits and fruit juices and staying away from dreaded fat. All that information that people have gotten for years and years has done nothing but make our health indices decline dramatically which is good for the pharmaceutical industry because we're taking diabetes drugs and cholesterol lowering drugs and who know and blood pressure drugs who knows what else so uh, you know it, it, when people finally see the light there's no going back you know uh, most people in america western cultures will believe that the sun rises in the east and at noontime it's straight up and then the sun sets in the west but i'm what i'm telling them is that Believe it or not, the sun isn't moving. It's the earth that is spinning. And the moment they get their arms around that, they realize, you know, maybe it's good to start conceptualizing even things like our diet in different ways. Let's look at things differently. But once people get this and read 
you know, read books like yours and read Grain Brain and Wheat Belly by Dr. Davis, they realize that they've been given a bill of goods that uh, is so off the mark and basically has been promulgated by people who don't necessarily have their health interest in mind. Hey guys, I've got a great new product to tell you about here today that is the first all-in-one keto meal that gets its nutrition from quality real foods. It's called Ample K. Go to amplemeal.com, enter the coupon code MORE15, that's M-O-O-R-E-1-5 at checkout, and you'll get 15% off your first order. Ample K is the first complete keto meal that gives you all the healthy fats in a powdered, mix-on-the-go format. It will help you stay in ketosis with just six net carbs for a 400-calorie meal. It is packed with MCTs for enhanced ketone production and 70 percent of the calories come from fat, which will help you satisfy your hunger, give you energy throughout the day, and keep you in ketosis. It also is good for the gut health, and they put 40 billion CFU probiotics in every meal. Again, it's called Ample K. Go to amplemeal.com and be sure to enter the coupon code MORE15 at checkout for 15% off of your first order. Ample K. Welcome back to the Living La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. And today I'm very pleased to bring to you yet another one of our great keto clarity experts. And this gentleman certainly needs no introduction now to the community. He's been doing some really great work. He being Dr. David Perlmutter. He is the number one New York Times bestselling author of the book Grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat Carbs and Sugar, Your Brain's Silent Killers. He's a board certified neurologist and fellow of the American College of Nutrition. Got his MD there and uh, he was awarded uh, lots of great awards over the years. A frequent lecturer, as you'll quickly find out why. He's very articulate. It's been on all sorts of media He's here today uh, not just to talk about ketosis, but also has a brand new companion book to Grain Brain. Uh, it's called The Grain Brain Cookbook. Dr. Perlmutter, welcome back to the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Well, Jimmy, always a pleasure. Well, let's let's talk about Grain Brain for a moment because, and your uh, website, by the way, drperlmutter.com. That's D-R-P-E-R-L-M-U-T-T-E-R.com. Lots of great information on there. But I remember when this book came out, I said, this book is going to be huge. Just like Wheat Belly did a few years back, you know, people were hungry and, and really wanting to know the metabolic effect of grains on their body. But you brought in a kind of a different aspect and were brilliant in coming up with grain brain very very onomatopoetic so to speak um did, did this surprise you how well the book did it did uh i wanted to write a, a book that was uh, a way for me to encapsulate all of the fundamental principles that we use here in our clinic in terms of not only treating individuals with brain related disorders but also taking it a step further and that is uh, creating programs to help prevent the very diseases that we dread the most. So yeah. that was really the purpose of the book. Uh, but I, I didn't think, uh, I really didn't get my arms around uh, the fact that it would become uh, already 48 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list yeah. and now in 28 countries in its 17th printing. So I'm what I'm thrilled most about is the fact that um, there's validation then of the message that 
the, the lifestyle choices that we make, the foods that we choose to consume, and we'll certainly talk a lot about that, are fundamental players in terms of brain health. You yeah. know, the whole notion has been that, uh, well, your brain health is pretty much come what may, maybe it's genetic, maybe it's not, but there's really not a heck of a lot that you do in your lifestyle uh, that has any real bearing on the health of your brain, and that is absolutely old news. It's out of date, and we now, as you and I will do in the next uh, few minutes, um, realize that our most well-respected peer-reviewed scientific literature is replete with citations indicative of the profound role that, for example, dietary choices have in determining the destiny of a person's brain. So that was the mission, and so far, mission you know, the, traction, yeah, the traction <laughs> of grain brain lets me believe that in 20 countries around the world, people are suddenly raising their eyebrows and going, my goodness, uh, yeah. I didn't know this, and I don't have to wait around till I'm suddenly walking into a room and forgetting why and hoping that there's a magic pill for me. There's a lot we can be preemptive about. So that was, you're right, it, it was a big surprise. And it's still selling extremely well, still on the New York Times bestseller list. I check that every week just to see what, you know, kind of books from our community is there. And Wheat Belly's always there, and Grain Brain is always there. So congratulations for all your great success. I got to tell you, my favorite part of kind of where you promoted the book was when you went on the Dr. Oz show and you made a statement that got the crowd cheering. Butter is back. I was cheering at home, dude. <laughs> that's, that's good. We all, we all love butter. And, you know, so many years we've been told that somehow fat is the enemy. You've got to be low fat, no fat, this and that. And nothing is more perverted for human physiology. And nothing is further from the right health recommendation. Uh, those individuals who consume higher levels of fat... Uh, have a dramatic reduction in risk for dementia, for example. That's what we're. That's what this is all about. And you know, it's not just that Dr. Perlmutter is on your program today talking about this. This is our most well-respected peer-reviewed research, and specifically for those who want to look it up, the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, January 2012. Research from the well-respected Mayo Clinic demonstrated those individuals who favor a high-carbohydrate diet have an 88% increased risk for developing dementia. Those individuals who have welcomed fat back to the table, eating the butter, eating the olive oil, the coconut oil, their risk for dementia is reduced by 44%. Now, let's couch these statistics uh, in the framework of recognizing that dementia is a disease for which there is no treatment. Right. That said, the mission here is to give people as much information as we can. These are important metrics that demonstrate that the foods you consume influence your brain's health. And again, it's all well and good that they're listening to the Jimmy Moore's program today, but understand that this guest is quoting peer-reviewed literature. This is the Mayo Clinic telling us, giving us the keys to the kingdom here. Yeah. And it's really important that we get this information out. Well, and that's one thing I've also always admired about you, Dr. Perlmutter, is you do always go back to the literature, which is what every good scientist should do. Um, and I love the little videos that you make. You, know, you do little two or three minute videos where you kind of very clearly explain some concept from some paper, peer reviewed journal paper. 
and you put it out there. And I think those kind of things, putting those uh, that information on YouTube and letting people see that, that's really what's going to help change people's minds about what they think about grains and think about fat. Absolutely. You know, um, the the one criticism I think that people will tend to uh, put forth is, well, we all appreciate what Jimmy Moore is saying and uh, what Rob Wolf is saying and David Perlmutter, all you people, but where is the science? So if the, the level playing field is the most respected, peer-reviewed scientific literature, fine. If that's what we need to put uh, to have our discussion about, uh, to have a reasonable interaction with the naysayers, absolutely bring it on because that is you know that's what people respect yeah we respect our, our unfortunately it is our very science that has gotten us into this mess because you know in the early uh, 1970s the science was one that said fat is the enemy eat more carbs and it's interesting that several weeks ago the cover of time magazine said eat butter on the cover mm-hmm. why our scientists uh, were wrong and you know, what I'm suggesting and what you've been suggesting and the other leaders in the field are certainly on board with is the fact that humans have been eating this type of diet, a higher fat, a lower carbohydrate diet for a couple of million years. And it has allowed us to survive under challenging and severely uh, adverse conditions. And yet we persevered because we've maintained not only our health, but our cognitive health, our ability to be clever which has, until very, very recently, if you read the newspapers these days, I think served us very well. Now, you know, I think maybe because of dietary changes, we're really not making the right choices. And, and you know, that's a, a bit of hyperbole, but I will say that there is now, you know, very clear evidence that dietary choices, especially those which favor high carbohydrates, may have a significant role in behavior. That foods, for example, that have higher levels of probiotic and prebiotic content Mm -hmm. actually change behavior and they change the perception of an individual's view of the world. Recent study from University of California, researchers had three groups of women. One got a placebo, one got milk, and one got a milk that was fermented. And they did what were called functional MRIs on these women. And what they found was the group that had uh, the fermented milk product, in other words, a, a food product high in a certain array of bacteria, probiotic bacteria, mm-hmm. reacted far differently to on the fMRI, the brain scans, when they were shown kind of threatening uh, images, threatening uh, people, uh, pictures of threatening people, that they were less uh, activated, less threatened by these pictures and basically saw the world as a less threatening place wow. by virtue of the fact that their foods were modified by giving them foods with with good bacteria, changed their appreciation, their perception of the world. The brain uh, being subject to the bacteria in the gut in terms of its perception of the world. Pretty interesting stuff. Who knew food could could impact mental health? (laughs) Yes, who knew? You know, you could write a book about it. I've I've heard about it, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> now, before we get into the Grain Brain Cookbook, I did want to talk about ketosis somewhat because you were one of my great experts in keto clarity and you had a really awesome moment of clarity quote. I believe a low level of ketosis is actually the natural and most optimal state of metabolism for humans. Historically, our genome evolved to express itself most ideally based upon food sources available for our consumption. Thus, from an epigenetic perspective, the very best way we can communicate with our DNA is to provide it with the signals that over millennia it has come to expect. And, you know, you talk about this K word, as I like to call it, and people run for the hills. But really, the K word has been as much a part of the human experience for as long as civilization has been around as anything. Well, that's right. And and I would say that uh, the actual quote about uh, ketosis being should be, uh, be considered um, a, a natural uh, state of humans. I, I'm not going to take credit for that. I actually, um, that's a quote that I lifted from uh, "Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It" by Gary Taubes. I've heard uh, of. I think, yeah, and it's an excellent book. I would encourage your listeners to take a look at that uh, book. They probably have it. <laughs> I'm sure they have. But uh, that said, when you think about it, we've never had carbohydrates in the diet to any significant degree. Where would we have gotten carbohydrates as hunter-gatherers? They didn't exist. Eating meat doesn't supply carbs. Uh, eating uh, root vegetables or, or fibrous vegetables that you find on the ground uh, doesn't give much carbohydrate. The only real source of carbs that we've had traditionally, and I mean for 99.5% of the time that we've been on the planet, has been when we would uh, encounter ripened fruit at the end of the summer and in the early fall. Blueberries, for example. You know, you you can go out in the woods and still find berries that ripen. And everything worked. You consumed these carbohydrate-rich foods high in uh, glucose and fructose, and at least the, the glucose part of that story would stimulate the body to make insulin and the primary role of insulin in human physiology is not to lower sugar it is actually to cause the body to make and store fat so there was a place for us to rely on this mechanism in our hunter-gatherer days consuming those carbohydrates those sugars uh, in the uh, late summer early fall allowed us to store fat to make it through the winter so it's a wonderful mechanism which unfortunately these days is being uh, threatened uh, by the challenges to that system uh, by uh, giving us carbohydrates and sugars 365 days a year. Uh, So we store fat and um, make fat for the winter that never comes. The time of caloric scarcity never comes. We don't have to store fat for the for winter because we're gonna be sucking down these calories year long. And that's really, in my opinion, the cornerstone of the epidemic of obesity that is pretty much a global situation at this time. Right. Because carbohydrates, by and large, have the great advantage of not spoiling uh, and allow uh, allow us to grow uh, things and store them and process them and ship them and allow, you know, that was what allowed uh, humans to expand their range. It allowed us to explore other places by boat because we had flour. And, uh, and that said, it's not the proper signal for human physiology. We know that we actually function quite well on a diet that's based on fat, that stimulates the cell's energy producers called the mitochondria to work more efficiently, create more energy in the form of ATP, 
and create this energy with less production of damaging free radicals so that our cells become energy power plants with much less damaging exhaust and it also stimulates the cells to grow more mitochondria so that there is more mitochondria to help out with this process of energy production. Now, the brain consumes a lot of the body's energy. At rest, your brain consumes about 25% of your total body energy burn, and yet the brain represents about 3 to 5% of your total body weight. So it's a very energy-hungry organ, and it is now clear that the brain works far more efficiently when it is burning fat as opposed to burning carbohydrates. Now, there's going to be a small percentage of your listeners who are going to raise your eyebrows and get ready to put comments on your website uh, about, oh, no, the brain needs glucose. We all know that, and this this information is uh, totally without merit. And let me just say sort of preemptively that that isn't the case, that the brain wonderfully functions when it burns uh, fat, when it burns ketones. And as a matter of fact, there is now an FDA-approved treatment for Alzheimer's uh, disease using a medical food that is written in the form of a prescription by neurologists to improve brain performance, improve memory, which is based upon this platform of giving the brain its desperately needed fat. You can now write a prescription for this. So, What's it called? That said, well, the name brand is Axona, A-X-O-N-A. People should look it up. Yeah, we put that uh, in and what it is, Absolutely. And, and that said, uh, I, you know, for, for some of my patients who would like to have some of their expenses offloaded to their insurance, I write them prescriptions <laughs> for Axona. I've written that prescription in the treatment of autism. I've Butter written works. that prescription. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I think it, you really want to push the pathway through, not to be technical, but for some of your listeners that are going to love this, right. you want to enhance the production of what's called beta-hydroxybutyrate. So that is the primary ketone that the brain really functions well on. Right. And you do that by using uh, things like a medium-chain triglyceride oil or even uh, more palatable coconut oil, which mm-hmm. is, you know, when you freeze it, it's great. You can make believe you're eating a candy bar, call it what you will. But the point is, this is mimicking a diet that our, our physiology has adapted to for a long, long time. When you go on a low-fat diet, you will, by default, increase your carbohydrate consumption. And that said, that is the cornerstone of everything evil, not only as it relates to the brain, but as it relates to heart disease, diabetes, cancer, autoimmunity, and other inflammatory disorders. So the message here is give your body what it has always wanted, what our genetic predisposition has indicated is the best diet for human physiology, and that is a diet that welcomes back to the table not all fats, let's be clear, not trans fats, not not modified fats, but those natural fats that you've heard so much about. And butter is back, yes it is, but we want to be sure that is coming from grass-fed, organically raised cows. That butter you might buy at the grocery store from uh, GMO-fed cows that have been uh, aggressively treated with growth hormone right. and or antibiotics with antibiotics in their feed as well. You need to avoid that stuff to, to save your life. You need to run for the hills when, when, <laughs> when that's on your plate. It's the wrong food, as is most of the meat that you might eat. So the, the, the challenge for us in writing the Grain Brain Cookbook um, it has been, and now that it's out, 
to, again, emphasize these important concepts that this is not a load up on pork rinds and all meat and a hamburger type of diet, that meat can be consumed in limited uh, amounts, six to eight ounces a day, that it absolutely, if you choose to eat meat, should be a grass-fed, organically raised beef, wild fish, not farm-raised, a free-range chicken, uh, the eggs from those free-range uh, free chicken, etc. That this is a diet that is really pretty much focused on loading the plate with above-ground, colorful, nutrient-dense, fibrous-dense vegetables, and that the meat dish, the animal part of this story, if you choose to eat animal products, is relegated to being the side dish or almost at times the condiment. That um, there is some validity to the, the China study, to Dr. Campbell's work. But understand that those statistics that are generated in comparing meat eaters versus vegetarians or meat eaters versus populations where they eat a lot of rice and therefore have high carbohydrates, that's not fair because it's like saying, well, we're going to do a study of alcohol consumption versus being a teetotaler, and we're not going to make any differentiation between drinking scotch or drinking one glass of organic red wine. They're all alcohol. Same thing with meat. Eating typical grocery store high omega-6 pro-inflammatory antibiotic-enriched beef is not the recommendation from Jimmy Moore or David Perlmutter today, I can assure you. Right. It's got to be very, very specific. And, you know, that's what we put together now in the new cookbook are the recipes to how do you work with this meat? It needs, it has less fat content, so it's cooked less. And what are all your options for eating, not feeling deprived, for having dessert, for having breakfast, and being able to travel? That was, that was the mission, and I think we've accomplished that. Well, and I really appreciate the comments about moderating down the meat, because if you're trying to be ketogenic, I mean, you're going to have to do that anyway. So it's good. And, and absolutely, if you can find a great local farmer that has, uh, you know, the good quality sources of meat, that's what you want to do anyway. There's a website, eatwild.com, I think is what it is, that you can actually find a farm that is close to you where you can purchase these kinds of things. And I get a lot of criticisms when I talk about real foods like that, uh, Dr. Perlmutter, because people are like, well, that's very elitist. You can't find it anywhere. It costs too much money. I said, no, no, and no. Go and look, and you can see there are a lot of people um, that are doing it the right way, and we need to support those people. Yeah, without a doubt. And again, uh, as you've seen in the, in the new cookbook, this is a, a diet that anyone can do, and it's not elitist. Uh, we've constructed recipes that are not going to break the bank. Yeah. And, and, and again, uh, I, I think that, you know, at least as it relates to Alzheimer's disease, there's been uh, a lot of um, stuff appearing on the web saying that, well, Japanese people have lower rates of Alzheimer's disease, <laughs> and yet they eat rice. Right. Well, you know, the, the, and they eat a lot of carbohydrate. Well, number one, they don't eat a lot of free, simple sugars. And number two, they're not pounding their physiology with pro-inflammatory omega-6 oils all day long. Right. To say that Japanese people don't get Alzheimer's and that Japanese people eat a lot of rice and therefore eating a lot of rice prevents Alzheimer's <laughs> is a little bit of a stretch in terms of connecting those dots. It's like saying, well, Japanese men don't get Alzheimer's and they have very little chest hair. Therefore, if you shave your chest, you won't get Alzheimer's disease. Oh, I'm going to you know, try that. 
Well, there's a lot to be said about correlation and causality. Right. right. This is a correlation. It certainly doesn't point to causality. There are a lot of factors. And I think that we are just beginning to understand uh, some of the nuances about different cultures as they relate to inflammatory disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Those are inflammatory disorders of the brain. For example, one study recently uh, came out of England uh, demonstrating uh, what they looked at was the degree of diversity of gut bacteria as well as the level of parasite load in the gut in, in various countries as it related to risk of Alzheimer's in those countries. And what they found was in those countries, like sub-Saharan African countries, where there were a lot of parasites in the gut and where there were uh, a very wide uh, array of bacteria, lots of bacterial diversity, that there was a profound correlation in terms of reduction of risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. That Alzheimer's is far more common in those countries where they're obsessed with hygiene, like America, Northern European countries, in those countries where people are aggressive with antibiotics, where the rates of cesarean section are much, much higher, therefore depriving the infant of being inoculated with mother's uh, birth canal bacteria, that these are the countries in which Alzheimer's rates are uh, soaring, as are other inflammatory, and even autoimmune conditions right. uh, like type 1 diabetes and lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, etc. You don't see these conditions uh, arising nearly as frequently as um, in, in places like sub-Saharan Africa, places where their hygiene is worse, where they are welcoming back the, uh, the friendly bacteria to the gut, where it's been called the old friend hypothesis, that you ultimately develop a tolerance to this diverse array of bacteria, viruses, yeasts, and even parasites that colonize the gut. And again, recognize that's probably the historical norm for human beings. We've always lived in pretty uh, unhygienic uh, environments, eating right. things off the ground, and it made us strong. Uh, you know, this was really uh, an interesting experience I had several years ago. There was a, a devastating earthquake in Haiti. And uh, later that week, I um, ended up in Haiti. Uh, and we were, gee whiz, we were, uh, we were amputating limbs, etc., in conditions that were anything uh, but sterile. Right. Doing the best we can. Basically, um, trying to save lives and knowing that these crushed limbs were going to kill people ultimately. And, you know, post-operatively, uh, these individuals were put in a tent that was provided to us by UNICEF. Uh, they didn't get antibiotics. Um, <laughs> the neighbors would bring them food. Uh, the wounds would heal. They wouldn't have any post-operative fevers. And it, it was breathtaking to me. Yeah. It was absolutely breathtaking that we'd make rounds on these patients in the morning and they were healthy. And, these were people that we uh, had operated on the night before in, the condi in conditions that were appalling, and they were hardy. So my point is that we've really got to recognize that food um, has a lot more going on with it than uh, simply protein, uh, fat, and carbohydrates and micronutrients, that right. there are aspects of food as they relate to the gut in different ways. And it brings up the idea of uh, foods that are prebiotic-rich, foods like Jerusalem artichoke and jicama and dandelion greens that augment or enhance the growth of 
inflammation reducing bacteria in the gut mm -hmm. and in my opinion this is the future of uh, of treating things like autism and ADHD depression Alzheimer's and, and other inflammatory conditions now that sounds like a stretch and I know your listeners will be challenged by that but I will indicate Not my listeners <laughs> there you go um, we have uh, this fall a new peer-reviewed medical journal coming yeah. out called brain and gut uh, and we have uh, editors from Johns Hopkins and Harvard, and our uh, journal will premiere in 140 countries worldwide. Wow. And it's really focused on exactly this, that who knew <laughs> food matters as it relates to the brain. Yeah. So it is, um, it's a bit of an epiphany for many of us, but it is... Uh, for those of us who kind of embrace this, even tangentially, it offers us such powerful leverage in an area where we've been fairly emasculated over the years in terms of not having meaningful tools not only to treat but certainly even to prevent these most devastating and feared conditions. So that said, um, I think the next couple of years are going to be very, very exciting as it relates to uh, this conversation that we're having today. Absolutely. And you're the editor in chief of that brain and gut uh, peer reviewed journal as well. So uh, I, I got to ask you a question, though, related to gut health, because that's one of the criticisms of those of us who promote a low carb uh, diet a ketogenic diet is well you're going to destroy your gut flora by eating that way because you're not able to get those fibrous um, things that would feed that gut flora uh, what do you say in response to that i'd say wrong <laughs> i'd say move on to the next question <laughs> i mean because these ve these vegetables that you're eating are yeah. low glycemic index vegetables low in in carbohydrates anyway and right. especially those that offer up inulin and uh, other sources of what we call fructooligosaccharides or yep. fuel for the gut bacteria this is absolutely mana this is this is catering uh, these gut bacteria are going to see these foods come in and they're just going to sit down at the table and be thrilled by what you've fed them. You know, we call, interesting, I use that, that language because we call these gut bacteria commensals, the commensal bacteria, co meaning with and mensa meaning eat. So these are bacteria that eat together. They actually eat with us to eat what we eat. Wow. And those bacteria outnumber you know, the bacteria in your body outnumber uh, Jimmy Moore cells 10 to 1 and the uh, the you know ninety nine percent of the genetic material in your body is contained within those bacteria. Right. So nurturing those bacteria with these foods, giving them the right kinds of fats that will heal the gut lining, reduce gut permeability, which is the cornerstone of inflammation in human physiology. Again, let me just run through that one more time. When the gut bacteria are nurtured, it reduces gut permeability. Gut permeability is the cornerstone of inflammation. Inflammation is a key player in cancer, diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's, autoimmunity. So gut bacteria are playing perhaps the most important role in determining which side of the equation you will land on in terms of those dreaded situations and more. We nurture our gut bacteria with fibrous, rich vegetables, rich in probiotics, good fats, uh, limited amounts of protein. And to get back to your comment about protein consumption and ketogenesis yep. and becoming ketotic, I think, again, we've got to let people understand that 
you know, maybe um, uh, eight uh, tenths or of a gram, or maybe a gram of protein per day uh, per a kilogram of body weight. Uh, is reasonable. So right. uh, that means that we, we don't want people by by any stretch of imagination to conceive of this idea um, that they should be loading up on protein now that they're on a carb-restricted uh, diet to make up for it because you'll break those proteins down into their constituent amino acids and then uh, reassemble uh, glucose itself from the very amino acids that you've consumed. So it is a mostly vegetarian approach with again the meat relegated to being the side dish but even being vegetarian that's totally cool as well with the caveats that you've got to make sure you're getting adequate amounts of vitamins uh, b12 absolutely vitamin d uh, trace minerals uh, manganese zinc uh, copper and of those uh, fats making sure that you're getting enough dha glucosahexaenoic acid which, if you are a strict vegetarian and don't want to take fish oil, you can get uh, an algae-derived product. But your brain is desperate for DHA. You can't let up on that. I mean, I've seen a lot of recovering vegans and vegetarians, myself included. Uh, and many of them have noted, actually, difficulties with thinking, cognitive issues, because they've been DHA Omega, specific omega-3 deprived because they wouldn't eat fish and they wouldn't take fish oils. Okay, if you decide to, to make that dietary choice, have at it, but recognize there are vegetarian sources of DHA at any health food store. Don't forget that it's a very fundamental player for brain health. Mm-hmm. Well, in the last few minutes, let's talk about the Grain Brain Cookbook. Obviously, you had a very highly successful book in 2013 that's still doing extremely well. And I'm sure you had people knocking on your door saying, um, this is all well and good, but we want to know how to eat. So what are some good recipes you could make? Are, are you naturally a good cook or did you have someone kind of help you develop these? <laughs> well, the first question is I'm uh, an Excellent, excellent uh, cook when Good. it comes to making omelets. <laughs> and that's pretty much the scope. You burn but, water, huh? <laughs> but uh, um, I actually... Um, I'm really good at tasting food. So oh, good. When you, when people cook. Uh, I'm, I'm right there. So um, my wife is a superb cook. Oh, and very nice. So we uh, brought on a recipe a developer who created these just gorgeous recipes, kind of following our lead, though. These are you know, many of these recipes are, are, are used in our home. And right. I don't know if you've seen any of the videos that we've, we're now putting on YouTube. We actually brought people into our home on, uh, and, and are demonstrating how we cook, how we eat, how to make the uh, almond-encrusted uh, salmon. Uh, Can I come? Pecan. <laughs> Absolutely. So people go to our website uh, or even Facebook. We're posting them on Facebook, right. which is, what is Facebook? David Perlmutter, MD. Right. So, um there, these recipes are just, uh, you know, the, the point is eat well, uh, be healthy and be happy and feel that you're not depriving yourself. I mean, that's been the big criticism. Oh, I can't get away without having good foods. Well, I want you to have good foods. But, you know, food is medicine and medicine is food. So we've right. got to look at food a little bit differently than just satisfying our taste. Not that these foods aren't going to do that. Of course they are. But these are foods that, in addition, are going to bring you health and make you, uh, and, and rather enhance your ability to resist disease. That's really important. I mean, uh, um, this was just published just a few thousand years ago by Dr. Hippocrates in the, uh, in the Hippocrates Journal, if that's a peer-reviewed journal, where he said, let medicine be your food, let food be your medicine. You're right, right um, that the foods you eat 
give you the micronutrients, the macronutrients, but also in addition to giving signals to your DNA, changing your genetic expression, it also serves to change the genetic expression of the gut bacteria, allowing them to produce products, uh, the B vitamins, the short chain fatty acids, for example, that allow you to remain healthy. So uh, there's a lot going on with food. And I frankly am well surprised that at this stage of my career, uh, not only did I write a book that's predicated on understanding uh, the fundamental role of food in brain health, that was grain brain, but a cookbook, uh, I, I didn't, I, that wasn't really on the bucket list <laughs> that, that my wife and I would write a cookbook. And yet, now that I think about it, it may be perhaps one of the most important things I do uh, in terms of, of giving people tools to be healthy uh, of my lifetime. It, it's yeah. not writing prescriptions for uh, for things. I mean, I'm, I'm doing this interview from my office. I just uh, finished uh, seeing a patient who, oddly enough, has encephalitis and uh, we're hospitalizing him this minute. Wow. Uh, so, and, you know, and that will obviously require a high-grade uh, pharmaceutical intervention, but at the same time, uh, and we're glad that we have those interventions. We're glad that uh, we can interpret his spinal tap and know what needs to be done. But that said, that's uh, that's treating uh, the problem once it has arisen. After the fact. I think, yeah. yeah, I think the mission here is... As John Kennedy said, the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining, and that is, let's keep people healthy so we're not scrambling in the 11th hour, uh, fourth quarter, you know, when we're down by a touchdown. We're not trying to figure out a play from the huddle and coming up empty. Let's get way ahead so that by the time the fourth quarter rolls around, we don't have any problem putting in the third string quarterback because <laughs> we're doing just fine. Right. Well... I was looking through uh, the recipes. Kale and br- bacon frittata really caught my eye. Uh, roast tenderloin of beef wrapped in bacon. Those are two like real simple ones that are in there. But there's also some that are a little more complex and maybe aren't as familiar like uh, this Greek dish quick. Uh, how do you say it? Moussaka? Moussaka. Moussaka. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, there's all kinds of different um, levels of cooking. So, you know, they kept it simple and i love that about a cookbook you know if you get too complicated with weird ingredients people kind of turn their nose up but it looks like the star of most of these are the spices that you add to it well we do that for two reasons um spices obviously reason number one is um flavor but understand as i mentioned just a moment ago that the foods we eat represent information that the foods we eat actually target our dna and change our genetic expression. I mean, that's a pretty empowering notion to get your arms around, that in our DNA, uh, 70% of the genes that code for health and longevity are under our direct control. We control our DNA expression. I mean, you know, in medical school, we were all taught years ago uh, that our genes were locked up in a glass case, our DNA, and that was it. It determined who and what you would be. And it was a one-way street from gene uh, expression to uh, protein assemblage to then morphology to expression of what those proteins would do. But we now understand that every food that we consume, including the spices, have a direct effect on gene expression. And some of these spices are 
profoundly uh, active in terms of changing gene expression. For example, turmeric uh, is one that um, has been described in the Vedic texts as offering up significant health benefits. Uh, you know, written 3,000 years ago, I don't think that the, the people who wrote the Vedic texts fully understood uh, genetic uh, chemistry. But what we understand now is that herbs like uh, turmeric, uh, coffee, uh, broccoli uh, extracts, for example, green tea extracts, actually modify a very specific gene pathway called the NRF2 pathway. And at the risk of being too technical, basically when that pathway is activated, it dramatically reduces inflammation and it increases the body's production of antioxidants. So when you're consuming these foods and these spices, you're reducing inflammation, you're increasing antioxidant protection, and that has obvious and profound health benefits. So uh, that's why, uh, as you rightly call attention to, we are really generous with our use of spices well beyond flavor, but because these are, gosh, we're targeting gene expression in a recipe in a cookbook. It's, it's, (laughs) It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Well, if people are interested in getting that cookbook, again, it's called The Grain Brain Cookbook, More Than 150 Life-Changing Gluten-Free Recipes to Transform Your Health. And of course, if you haven't gotten Grain Brain, I think everybody and their mama has Grain Brain by now. But in case you're one of the people that doesn't, go get that as well. We'll have links to both of those in the show notes section at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And again, uh, Dr. Perlmutter, you can find him at dr pearlmutter.com Hey guys, you've been hearing me talk about this company called Real Good Foods and the pizzas and enchiladas that they make available at realgoodfoods.com Well guess what? They finally got into Walmart So you can go to Walmart right now and get their two-time servings large pizzas all across Walmart stores in America. And each of these pizzas has only four grams of carbs per serving. They also have an exclusive flavor only at Walmart, bacon and cheese. So check out the store locator at realgoodfoods.com to find a store near you and get your Real Good Foods pizzas from Walmart today. Go support this ketogenic company, Real Good Foods. Welcome back to the Living La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. And today I'm very privileged to welcome to the podcast a returning podcast guest. I think it's like his third or fourth time on the show, but you know him. His name, Dr. David Perlmutter. He is a board certified neurologist and a fellow of the American College of Nutrition He's the recipient of the Linus Pauling Award and the author of the number one New York Times bestselling book, Grain Brain, as well as the Grain Brain Cookbook, The Better Brain Book, and Raise a Smarter Child by Kindergarten. He lives in Naples, Florida, and he's here today because he is not stopping writing books. He's going to continue on, it looks like. And the latest one is very intriguing. It's called Brain Maker, the power of gut microbes to heal and protect your brain for life. Dr. Perlmutter, welcome back to the show. Well, Jimmy, I am absolutely delighted to be back. Well, tell us a little bit about, uh, I guess, your reaction to the grain brain message before we get into the new book, because, you know, it had to be a little bit surprising that it was so well received like it's been. Well, I would agree with you. Uh, more than a little bit surprised that. 
Uh, this book now, 18 months out, is in 27 countries around the world. Wow. Uh, it's in its 24th printing. So, uh, you know, I really wanted to do my very best to get out this incredibly important message that carbs were killing people. Yeah. And uh, we had to pay attention to that. And, you know, what I think is really very validating is all the, the new research that's coming out after the book was written. Uh, even our governmental recommend, dietary recommendations after, uh, that occurred about a month ago. Yeah. Uh, indicating that, you know, the big issue here that it's killing people are the carbs. It's not the dietary fat. So it's it's really great along the way then to be validated. You know, once you write a book, it's it's written, it's done, and right. and you have to kind of stand behind it or not. And I'm very grateful uh, that two things happen. Number one, the science has continued to validate our contention. And number two, that so many people have realized such dramatic changes in their health uh, as a consequence of making some very simple but at the same time profound uh, changes in their diet and lifestyle. So that's what it's all about. You know, it's, it's one thing for me to see a patient one-on-one -on -one, day in and day out. That's great. But to touch so many people with this information, many of whom I will obviously never see directly. Right. It's very, very fulfilling. Well, it's really cool when I go check the New York Times bestsellers list to see who all's hit and your name and Dr. Davis's name is like always there. So it's, it's kind of like seeing good friends that uh, and, and both of you are good friends. So I'm really happy that you've seen great success. But let's talk about this new book because you're you're kind of shifting gears just slightly because it's the same subject matter, except, okay, we now understand you understand the green part of it. Now that we've told you what not to eat, now let's help you make a good brain. And so it, you, you kind of get to the heart of that in this new book, Brain Maker. That's right. And the... Um the great thing about BrainMaker, you know, it really focuses on this incredible new leverage point that has just uh, become evident, and that is that the gut bacteria are playing a profound role in every conceivable aspect of our health, and we never realized that. Nobody's and, talking about it. No, but now they are. I mean, yeah. you know, when, when it's on the cover of Scientific American, you, you know, you begin to take notice. That's and, a big deal. Yeah, and what is um, really a real uh, incredible is that perhaps no other part of the body is more sensitive or influenced by the goings-on within the gut than the brain. So, you know, I, I grew up in a very reductionist mentality of, of, in terms of medicine where, you know, the brain was a neurologist area and the gastroenterologist had the gut and no one really would ever talk to each other because the brain and the gut have no relationship to each other. Now we understand that that relationship is profound and highly influential and that uh, these hundred trillion organisms that live within your gut, you know, called the human microbiome mm -hmm. that outnumber your body cells 10 to one are playing dramatic roles every moment in terms of regulating the set point of inflammation, determining how you absorb nutrients, uh, regulating uh, energy, regulating metabolism, uh, determining how much calories you'll extract from food. Uh, it's breathtaking. And the science involving the microbiome is exploding yeah. uh, with our most well-respected research institutions just dedicating huge resources now to exploring what can be done. And, uh, and I'm, I'm hopeful we'll have a chance to discuss some of these leading-edge research issues.
Are, are they teaching this at all in medical schools, this whole connection between gut health and brain health? <laughs> uh, I don't I know the answer. I gave a lecture uh, <laughs> two weeks ago yeah. to the first year medical students at a, a local, uh, at a particular medical school here in Miami. Uh, in Florida, <laughs> slip there. But anyway, they, you know, it was I could have been speaking in another language. Uh, you know, they're learning pharmacology and yeah. pathology and how to give, how to write drugs. How, what's the mechanism? How do you? What does Prozac do? And it's unfortunate, but certainly it was well received. And you know, if if one or two students in that whole class uh, realizes that this is the future of health, uh, it'll be you know, it, it was a worthwhile day. Yeah, and I think the research is probably going to drive that. And and what I'm seeing from some of the young medical school students, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Perlmutter, if you don't see this as well, you know, they seem to be a lot more open-minded to lifestyle and nutrition than even the generation before them. I would like to say that's true, but when we recognize that even as you and I have this conversation, uh, still less than a quarter of medical schools require any education for upcoming doctors in terms of nutrition, mm. it means to me that we've got a long way to go. Now, many medical schools offer kind of ancillary courses and clubs, et cetera, that uh, for those strange uh, individuals who are interested in nutrition and uh, integrative medicine, you know, the odd people out. But by and large, it's just as by the book now as it as it ever was. Wow. And it's uh, it's okay. You know, I, I would rather light the single candle than curse the darkness. But, uh, you know, because we're now seeing published research in well-respected journals that are pointing front and center to this notion uh, that the microbiome is exercising huge control over the fundamental uh, mechanisms that underlie disease. I mean... Inflammation as a mechanism yep. is cornerstone of uh, coronary artery disease, cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis. And that set point of inflammation in your body is determined by the complexity, by the diversity of bacteria that live within the gut. So who knew? <laughs> who knew <laughs> that Dr. Max Newdorp in Amsterdam would reverse diabetes, type 2 diabetes, in 250 individuals, presented his results to us at Harvard, uh, that he reversed diabetes by doing a fecal transplant, by taking yep. fecal material from a healthy individual and implanting it into the diabetic patient and reversing diabetes by changing the gut bacteria. That is jaw-dropping. I mean, that's like a scene out of Game of Thrones. You just look at it and you say, gee, what just happened? My gosh. So this is the future. Um, I have the opportunity uh, later this year to chair a, an international symposium on the microbiome, and I'm uh, very excited that uh, Dr. Neudorp uh, will be attending and presenting even more up-to-date data on his findings. How long did this procedure keep these people from being diabetic? But yep. It's um, it, the other part of the story that's, that's super cool is that we didn't have to invent anything new here in terms of the basic dietary recommendations, because it turns out that a low carb, higher, good fat, high fiber, nutrient dense diet is exactly the right type of diet to nurture the good gut bacteria. So uh, it's not like we re had to, we had to rewrite, um, you know, keto clarity or a grain brain or any, any of these books that are out there because they're all on point 
And what is so beautiful is how all of this literature is converging now, lining up. You know, everybody's taking their seats in the same auditorium now, and it's it's really a very exciting time to be to be involved in this. <laughs> Indeed, it is, and you know, it's interesting. You you say a low carb uh, diet tends to be best for the gut health, and there's kind of this meme out there from my friends in the paleo community that say, well, you need some some types of starches that once you add those in, okay, it's no longer a low-carb diet. And you certainly address that in your book, that there are certain kinds of starches and, and foods that you want to eat to feed that microbiome. Can you talk about that? Without a doubt. And I think uh, it is fundamentally critical moving forward that your listeners understand that the care and feeding of the gut bacteria is perhaps the most important aspect of human health that you can pay attention to. More than calories. We call these bacteria the commensals. Mm -hmm. That means co means together and mensa means eat. We share a table. They eat what we eat. And to answer your question, uh, there are plenty of somewhat starchy uh, but fiber-rich foods like Mexican yam or jicama. Uh, for example, that do contain some modicum of carbohydrate, but nonetheless are rich in substances like inulin, which is a prebiotic fiber that just is the perfect fuel for the growth of the good bacteria in the gut. Mm-hmm. So we really want to emphasize those prebiotic fiber foods, the Mexican yam, uh, the um, uh, yog- uh, uh, dandelion greens, garlic, onions, Jerusalem artichoke. These are foods that are power packed uh, with the, the actual food that allows replication and metabolism of the good bacteria. And at the same time, add in those good bacteria in the form of both uh, probiotic supplements, but uh, also recognize that we can amp our gut bacteria, the good gut bacteria, by eating fermented foods. Yes. So yes. drinking things like kombucha, cultured yogurt, um, Kimchi, which is a traditional uh, uh, Korean dish that's I just loaded it. with it, uh, probiotic bacteria. Yep. These yep. are fermented foods that you know people have been eating for thousands of years, along with the prebiotic fiber, that are absolutely the key to health. While at the same time, restricting the sugars, reducing the carbs, and recognizing that there are plenty of things that are commonplace now that we tend to get into. Uh, that are directly traumatic to our gut bacteria, not the least of which is the incredible overusage of antibiotics in America. You know, you have a sniffle and you walk, you go to a walk-in clinic, you're walking out of there with a prescription for a powerful antibiotic. And if you don't, you're going to say, gee, why did I even go in the first place? I didn't get my money's worth. So, you know, I tell my patients, look, if I give you an antibiotic for the cold that you have, uh, your, your cold will last about a week, but if, if uh, I don't give you the antibiotic, it's going to last a, a full seven days. And they think about that one for a minute and finally get the joke. But, you know, when you realize that 75% of the antibiotics used in America go into the food that we eat, that creates a scenario for traumatizing the microbiome and really creates a scenario that increases those colonies of bacteria that code for increasing inflammation that will code for obesity because they extract more calories from our food than we would otherwise extract 
And that ultimately can lead to things like a leaky gut, uh, yep. a cornerstone of virtually every inflammatory issue in the human body that you don't want to get. Indeed. And I think it's that inflammation that often gets lost in the conversation um, because people it's not as easy to track the inflammation. Uh, would people track this kind of inflammation with the HSCRP or the was it LP, LPA? Uh, how, how do they track oh, that? Probably not. I think that what is uh, arising as the um, key indicator of not just inflammation, but the cause of that inflammation mm-hmm. is um, the leakiness of the gut. And as such, uh, we can track that by measuring something called LPS, which stands for lipopolysaccharide. Mm-hmm. And LPS is a, um, uh, is a powerful inflammation inducer of itself. It is part of the covering over the gram-negative bacteria that live within the gut. As such, it, it is in the gut. It, a lot of it's in the gut, but that's where it belongs. When the gut leakiness happens when the gut wall is compromised by taking various medications, exposure to uh, gliadin, uh, exposure to uh, other things that can traumatize the gut wall, then uh, this LPS, lipopolysaccharide, the covering over these organisms gets into the systemic circulation and that leads to inflammation. So we see, and I actually have these graphs in uh, BrainMaker, elevated LPS in autism, Mm -hmm. in major depression, in Lou Gehrig's disease, in Alzheimer's disease. So we're really getting a sense that we've got to stop looking in the brain if we're going to have any uh, leverage for dealing with these extremely challenging brain-related disorders. The answer is not in the brain. Turns out the answer is in the gut. And it turns out even more so that the response for us should be to take a second look at what we're eating because that's how we nurture a healthy microbiome. Yeah. One thing that was shocking in your book, Dr. Perlmutter, was uh, the method of birth making a difference on the formulation of the microbiome and the role of the microbiome in immunity. Uh, They're now saying that births by cesarean uh, section increases the risk for diseases uh, such as ADHD, autism, type 1 diabetes, allergies, and even obesity in that child. Uh, Can you talk about why that happens? Oh, I'd be delighted to. Well, each of those diseases that you mentioned is primarily an inflammatory condition. So there is a significant increased risk of autism in children born by C-section because the balance of the immune system, keeping the immune system right where it needs to be, is not uh, going to happen when the gut bacteria are out of balance. And we receive our initial gut bacteria at the time of our birth, when we pass through the birth canal. That is a very powerful mechanism whereby the bacteria in the birth canal are delivered to the face of the infant. He or she swallows those bacteria and it provides a beautiful system to inoculate. Uh, it's, it's a microbial baptism of that child. So this, the, the microbiome is set up. Uh, when a child bypasses that experience and is born by C-section, yep. he or she does not have the benefit of that experience and then has a significant increased risk of autism that may be as high as doubled, uh, an increased risk of ADHD that may be as high as tripled, a 50% increased risk of obesity, a 70% increased risk of type 1 diabetes, an 80% increased risk of celiac disease, another autoimmune condition. So we really have to get our arms around the notion that that microbiome is the last minute 
transfer of information to that newborn or who's going to be the newborn, it's the walking papers. It's saying, look, this, because that, that microbiome in the birth canal changes uh, based on environment, based upon mother's food, her drug exposure, antibiotics, etc. But nonetheless, it's the final set of instructions given to that child to, to begin the development of his or her microbiome. And when that microbiome is not uh, ideal, then it can increase the risk of obesity as that child becomes an adult. That's how long-lasting that imprint is yep. of method of birth. Now, to be super clear on the topic, um, I think a C-section is really one of the greatest tools we have to save lives of mothers and or uh, newborns. Uh, but the point is, you know, a third of births in America now are C-section. Uh, I mean, the notion that, that a third of, of pregnancies are complicated and require a C-section is kind of hard to, to get your arms around, especially when you recognize that in some Scandinavian countries, the rate of C-sections is about 8% wow. of births. So we really have to understand the importance of that event, of being born through the birth canal in terms of delivering to that child this profound amount of information. When I say information, I also mean genetic information. Right. 99% of your DNA in your body is bacterial. It's not the 23,000 genes that everyone's all excited about. You know, when they finally sequenced the human genome, we were all excited thinking, oh my gosh, there's gonna be such great uh, medical therapeutics that are gonna be derived from that experience. Didn't really happen, we kind of were left flat on that one. But now we understand that 5 million, maybe 8 million genes are contained within the bacteria that live within us and that those bacteria themselves influence the expression of our genes. And if that's not enough, if that's not enough, we now are finding sequences of bacterial DNA in human in the human genome. They've actually inserted their DNA into our genome. Wow. So it's a time of great and empowering discovery. And um, what is so uh, exciting about it is that it's not going to be that hard. Uh, the door is opening wide to some very powerful interventions. I mean, you probably recall in the book, the case of Carlos, a man with multiple sclerosis who couldn't walk. And ultimately, um, we used what are called probiotic enemas. And, and after that, he actually had a, a fecal transplant. He went to England for that. That's a procedure I do not perform. Mm -hmm. And began uh, walking. No cane, walking up and down the hall. Uh, he sent me a video of that and uh, gave me permission to post it on drperlmutter.com with his entire story. Uh, he's actually going to be featured in my public television uh, program and be in the audience at the same time. Nice. So these are, <laughs> these are, yeah, they're single cases, but they are eye-opening. It just begins to tell the story of the power of manipulating these gut bacteria and, and at the end of the day, nurturing them through dietary choices. And I have to keep coming back to the point, Dr. Perlmutter, that the general public, while this may be known in research circles and people like you and I are talking about it on this podcast today, the general public is totally oblivious to this message, which is why your book, uh, Brainmaker, is so important right here, right now. Well, I, I would say um, pretty much oblivious. Uh, 
people you know, like, I know that yeah, but, <laughs> they don't care. You, know, you see articles in Time Magazine. You right. see uh, there was a, a brilliant article about a child with a two-year-old with uh, crippling arthritis being treated by uh, working with his uh, gut bacteria in, in the New York Times Magazine. But I'd say by and large, uh, the general public is not uh, dialed in to this message at all. And, you know, my purpose in writing Brain Maker was to make this science approachable by, by everyone. And, you know, I, I guess um, that's what's happening. People are reading it now and, yeah. and gaining that. And, and I do it with anecdote and I do it with uh, my uh, ability to step down the science so that we can all get our arms around it. But yep. I will tell you that, uh, you know, in a year or two, when you and I have another conversation, hopefully sooner, but I'm going to give it a couple of years at least on this topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, there will be great advancements. And um, uh, I, I received an invitation um, just before coming on with you today from uh, Harvard, where there'll be a symposium in a couple of months, uh, looking again at what is the cutting edge of this research and what does the future hold. So I am so excited about it because, you know, as a neurologist, uh, our mission was pretty much diagnose and adios. You know, yeah. we, we named something, we said, oh, you have XYZ disease, but sorry to hear that there's very little we could do but now i think the door is opening and we realize that, again as i mentioned earlier that the answer here is probably not in the brain it's probably in the gut and um, i'm all over it i think it's really very very exciting yeah and like the cesarean section uh, third of the pregnancies uh, having that now, we have a similar problem with the overdiagnosis and overusage of antibiotics that people take. And, you know, and I took quite a few of those myself over the years and never even thought twice about what that was actually doing to my body. Uh, can you talk about the role that antibiotics play in this issue? Well, I, I certainly can. And, you know, um, antibiotics right now in America <coughs> are hugely overused. We understand. You know, four out of five Americans takes an antibiotic every year. It is the most common prescription written for children 10 years or younger. Wow. But, uh, you know, the more compelling is the fact that 75% of the antibiotics used in America go into uh, raising the animals that we eat. So that's where the bulk of the antibiotics are used in America. We eat these animals, then have been treated with antibiotics. And lo and behold, we have issues like obesity. There was a wonderful book by Dr. Martin Blazer called Missing Microbes, where he talked about that extensively. So, you know, I, I will tell you, knowing your history, that it doesn't surprise me uh, that you had such aggressive antibiotic exposure during your younger years. And that made, uh, you know, your particular met- metabolic challenges uh, even uh, more challenging. And yeah. I think as we move forward, uh, we'll understand more and more what we can do to reprogram the, the gut bacteria and Hey, we've all had antibiotics and all is not lost. Some of us were born by C-section. So uh, the the good news is that the gut can be rehabbed, that the bacteria can be repopulated. Uh, You don't have to go to the extent of having a fecal transplant. There are wonderful things, uh, actionable things that that, uh, can be undertaken uh, to really uh, rebuild the microbiome and regain health and reduce inflammation, reduce your risk for so many of these uh, worrisome conditions. So uh, that's where we're going, uh, without a doubt. And, um, and you know, every day there are uh, new uh, publications that are strengthening the case for the relationship of the gut bacteria to things like autism. 
Who yeah. knew? What a challenging disorder increased in its incidence seven to eight fold in just the past 15 years. This is a modern day epidemic. And now we understand that when you sequence the gut bacteria, there is almost a fingerprint that it identifies that it correlates with autism. There's been found the overgrowth of a, a particular clostridial species in autism. And hey, fecal transplant is how autism is treated. Uh, I mean, how um, clostridium is treated uh, in America in over 150 hospitals. I have a patient, a, an autistic 10-year-old, who uh, his mother did that procedure for him. And he gained the ability to speak. Uh, I actually got a um, video of him uh, last week of him presenting, um, practicing his speech in school where he's given a book report about Benjamin Franklin. And it absolutely took my breath away. And we've put him on the website as well with his mother's permission. A child with autism who gains the ability to speak and interact socially after fecal transplantation. Pretty, uh, it's pretty breathtaking. Absolutely. And, you know, even talking about fecal transplants, just a few years ago, I had a guy on the show four or five years ago, and it just seemed like such a foreign concept now. But now we're seeing it more and more. And, and perhaps... Um, you know, like the gut bacteria story itself, you know, that will become more and more normal right now in the mainstream. And I, and I always try to think through the, the patient perspective, the average person out there that still seems kind of wacky, but we're seeing too many good things for it to be totally dismissed. I would agree with that. And uh, I only present these um, these ideas because they they make the point. They make the point about the importance of the gut uh, microbiome. Yeah. You know, these are, these are drastic uh, maneuvers, uh, fecal transplant for sure. It's going to happen more and more. And you know, ultimately, I think you'll see companies manufacturing specific types of material, the uh, bacterial colonies to be administered to treat specific diseases and probably base that on what the, uh, not just the disease, but what is the milieu of the patient in the first place? What do their gut bacteria look like and how then can we fix it? It's coming. Uh, once uh, mainstream pharma uh, really gets their arms around this, that, that technology will explode and I think it's going to be a great thing. Um, the risk profile for this fecal transplant here in America that's used for treating C. diff is probably the safest intervention in a hospital that there's ever been. Yeah. <laughs> there was one interesting report, however, of a woman with C. diff and she chose her daughter as the donor. And the daughter, unfortunately, was obese. And the woman who had the C. diff, the infection in her gut, was thin. And then when she got her daughter's fecal material transplanted, she became uh, quickly gained a lot of weight. Yep. Again, indicating that uh, perturbations in the various types of bacteria in the gut can enhance the risk for uh, obesity. Uh, we know that in laboratory studies, when uh, laboratory animals that are identical genetically that are fed the identical chow, but one has been given a specific type of bacteria from humans, that uh, from an obese human, that animal eating the same number of calories will become obese. Yep. No change in the diet, just was changed uh, the gut bacteria so that there's more extraction of calories. And you wonder, I mean, so, you know, plenty of people are gaining weight and you hear it all the time. People, they, 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 put on, they post on your site, they say, gee, I've gone on your diet, I've lost a little weight, but I, I'm struggling. I am low carb. I'm taking in 1,600 calories a day. I can't seem to lose any more weight. The next step is going to be to reprogram the gut bacteria yep. 
to stop extracting every ounce, every calorie from their food. And I think we're going to see huge, huge gains in, in what happens. So, Dr. Perlmutter, as we end the show, kind of tell us how people can see what the state of their gut health is. Are there tests that can be run that are easy to access for the consumer? I'm not sure that there are. I mean, there, there are several uh, companies that are sequencing the, um, the uh, RNA and the DNA yep. of the gut bacteria. And, and I think it's great. I think this is wonderful. But the question is... Uh, deals with the interpretation of that data. What does it all mean? Right. Uh, there is a, uh, a stool test called GI effects from a company called Genova Diagnostics, but doctors have to order that for their uh, patients. And it characterizes the bacteria in, in larger groups of uh, friendly versus non-friendly. It looks at the metabolites of these bacteria, the pH. And that is, I think, uh, perhaps very helpful. This LPS test, I think, is, is a very, very uh, helpful uh, indicator of gut permeability. Mm-hmm. And that comes from a company called Cyrex, C-Y-R-E-X. Yep. And, and they, uh, they do great work. I mean, they're the company that I use for gluten sensitivity and food sensitivity. It's a blood they test? They offer this LPS panel, and I think it's a very, very effective test. Is it a blood test? Uh, it is. It's a blood test. And if anyone has already had uh, their Cyrex 3 test for gluten... Um, their doctor can call the lab and they don't have to have another blood draw. They can have the test run on the blood that's still there if it's not too old. Very nice. Very nice. Well, you've certainly given us a lot of food for thought and uh, you have a, a great meal plan in the back. I was looking through all, all the different uh, things and I'm like, yep, I eat that. Yep, I eat that. Yep, I eat that. And it, really the only difference between that and a low carb diet, which it is a low carb diet, is just making sure you're very cognizant of adding in those healthy bugs. And that's going to be the key to preserving your health. Again, his name, Dr. David Perlmutter, the name of the new book we've been talking about here today. Brain Maker, The Power of Gut Microbes to Heal and Protect Your Brain for Life. Check out his website, drperlmutter.com. Well, Dr. Perlmutter, it's always a pleasure to speak to you here on the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Jimmy, you do a great job, and uh, I thank you for all that you do. You're, you're contributing a whole heck of a lot to you know the knowledge base, so way to go. Coming up next time on the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show, we'll have a very special LLVLC classic episode when we share interviews with Sally Fallon Morell and Dr. Lauren Cordain debating the paleo diet. Get show notes for today's episode at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show. We'll see you next time. Disc of Light.